we have been studying through the parables and I had intended to keep on with the parables in Matthew 13 but change tonight by the way the um, lesson that Dr. Dobson who is on the associate faculty of the University of Los Angeles Medical School uh, in uh, uh, pediatrics has uh, uh, is a brilliant communicator and uh, he will speak tonight on the strong-willed child <laughs> and so our lesson today about the two brothers is going to bring out something about this uh, but in order to properly understand that you have to get the picture of what Jesus uh, where he is speaking he has made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem he has encountered stiff opposition from the religious leaders who are there in the city of Jerusalem and uh, has gone into the temple which he has cleansed by overturning the tables of the money changers and by driving them out because they were making a place of commerce out of what he called my father's house, identifying himself with God and uh, the temple is a house of prayer. Now, when he had gone out at night to Bethany, where he was staying just outside the city of Jerusalem, uh, a strange incident took place. Remember that the symbol of the nation of Israel was a fig tree. And in Isaiah, uh, we will read a lot about a parable of a fig tree. And so let me pick up at chapter 21, verse 18 of the gospel according to Matthew. In the morning he came back early into the city, that is into Jerusalem, and he felt hungry. And he saw a fig tree growing by the side of the road. But when he got to it, he discovered there was nothing on it but leaves. No more fruit shall ever grow on you, he said to it. And all at once the fig tree withered away. When the disciples saw this, they were simply amazed. How on earth did the fig tree wither away quite suddenly like that, they asked. Believe me, replied Jesus, if you have faith and no doubts in your heart, you will not only do this to a fig tree, but even if you should say to this mountain, get up and throw yourself into the sea, it will happen. Everything you ask for in prayer if you have faith, you will receive. Then when he had entered the temple and was in the act of teaching, the chief priests and the elders came up to him and they said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you that authority? I am also going to ask you a question, Jesus replied to them. And if you answer it, I will tell you by what authority I am doing what I'm doing. John's baptism. Now, did it come from heaven or was it purely human? At this, they began arguing among themselves. If we say it came from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe in him? And if, on the other hand, we should say it was purely human, well, Frankly, we're afraid of the people, for all of them considered John was a prophet. And so then Jesus answered, 
We do not, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. Then I'll tell you, then I will not tell you by what authority I do these things, returned Jesus. But what is your opinion about this? There was a man with two sons. He went to the first and he said, go work in my vineyard today, my son. And he said, all right, sir. But he never went near it. Then the father approached the second son with the same request. And he said, no, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now, which of these two did what their father wanted? The second one, they replied. Yes, and I tell you that the tax collectors and the prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God in front of you, retorted Jesus. For John came to you as a saint, and you would not believe him. And yet the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe John. And even after seeing that, you would not repent and change your mind and believe in him. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this part of his word. Now, this is a very important lesson. It's a lesson that we have to learn. A lesson in life. A lesson that Jesus teaches beautifully. Jesus taught these wonderful parables in such a remarkable way. And uh, uh, this morning I was looking for a little poem that I'd cut out and put in my Bible. He talked of lilies and vines and corn, the sparrow and the raven. And tales so natural yet so wise were on men's hearts engraven. And yeast and bread and flax and cloth and eggs and fish and candles. See how the whole familiar world he most divinely handles. You see, Jesus could put in our mind things that we would not forget. And so he wanted to tell these stories. Stories to us to teach us lessons that we greatly need to understand. And when he had come into the city of Jerusalem, faced as he was with the shadow of the cross upon him, knowing all the hateful things that would be done to him in that week, and knowing that God had sent him as the Messiah, and that he would be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, knowing that the very people who should have rejoiced at his coming, the leaders there would reject him. And this hurts, it always hurts. And so it hurt the heart of our blessed Lord. And uh, he wanted to teach this to his disciples, the necessity of repentance. How that while there were those in leadership and authority who were had a deadening familiarity with God's word and God's ways and would not yield their stubborn will to him, that there were others who would listen and whose hearts would be soft and pliable and, which, and who would change their minds and be obedient. And so he told this story, which really is a story of discipleship and a story that has to do with repentance. 
Remember, he has seen this braggart fig tree with its profusion of leaves, looking as though it would be laden with fruit. And he came toward it to pick some of the figs which might have been there and should have been there at that time, some tender figs. But they were not there, the early figs. And so he withered it away. And he said the nation of Israel, which refused him, would come under such condemnation because of their refusal to hear the prophets that had come to them time after time, and then John the Baptist had come preaching to them, and they still would not listen. And then the astonishing thing was that among the religious hierarchy, you had the Sadducees, the professional religious people, they were the money changers. They were the people who made money out of religion. And you had the Pharisees who were laymen, but laymen who would put us to shame. They would fast two days in a week, and they would give the money from fasting to the poor. Uh, they were people who memorized long sections of scripture. Uh, they were people who were scrupulous, very careful about their observance of religious matters. And yet their hearts were all full, their minds were all full of the divine law of God, but their hearts were so seldom full of the love of God. Now there were exceptions. Caiaphas would have been a Sadducee. Nicodemus would be a Pharisee and a leader of them and would come under the cloak of darkness and Jesus would speak to him and we know that in the end he was converted. We also know that there were a large number of other people that were grouped together. We say this glibly but you wouldn't like it at all if your name was hooked in such a manner. The, the publicans and the prostitutes, the tax gatherers and the prostitutes, they were lumped together as one and the same. People who sold their bodies and people who sold out their people to collect taxes and make a lot of money from Rome. And yet these people flocked around Jesus because he gave them a new lease on life. He gave them the privilege of repenting, of having a changed mind and being forgiven and being all clean again inside. And the Pharisees couldn't understand how this would happen. And so Jesus, when he had gone in and had cleansed the temple, and had gotten into the great religious controversy there with both sides of the religious leadership, he told this story about the two boys. Uh, he told uh, about how one son was asked, and he answers with super polite language, I go, sir, but he does not go. I will. But it's only like that fig tree with the luxurious growth of leaves. 
He has no intention of obeying and going and working, and he lies. And this is what hurts, and it hurts terribly. And there is a complicated statement, which is well worth your remembering and writing in your Bible at this point, that it is better to finally believe what at first you cannot say than to say at first what you will never believe. You see, this man said at first what he would never really do. This son. The father had the right. It was all their vineyard. And it was a family enterprise. And the father had a right to ask him to work in the vineyard. And he wants to be like Dr. Dobson will demonstrate tonight in that film, which I hope you'll come and see, that he is compliant. He is so pleasant and so agreeable, but he will not do what he says he will do. And the defiant one says, no. I am not going to work in your silly vineyard. I hate the vineyard. I don't want to go near the vineyard. I am not going to do it. And he makes everyone absolutely miserable in the household with his storm of protest. Now, neither of them are really great examples of what they ought to be. Because who wants ulcers at breakfast uh, when you have to go through this? And so, after the storm is gone, one goes out and never goes and works. And then the one who had been so angry uh, and so rude and arrogant and recalcitrant, uh, he walks off. And I've been this way, and you have too. And we're getting close to Father's Day. This great parable for Father's Day next Sunday, when you're going to have the privilege of hearing a good preacher, Bill Junkin, is going to be preaching to you. Uh, uh, this, this boy uh, goes off, and I have an idea that he wasn't very happy with himself after he exploded. And he came back, and he could see the old man out there working in the vineyard with the servants. And he knew that sorry other brother hadn't done what he said he would. His fakey language, always beware of sir, 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 sir. Uh, it, it, the super polite may be a mask for a lot of hostility. And uh, so he has the super polite language, uh, but he is masking his hostility and he goes away and doesn't do a thing in the world. Uh, the other boy recognizes that he has done wrong and I think he sees the old man back there working, and uh, he begins to think, I really made a fool out of myself. This morning at the breakfast table, my mother was crying, and there we were having our devotions, <laughs> and all of this took place. I really, I really ought to get on back there and get in the vineyard and work. So he goes back, and he works in the heat of the day, he works all through that long, hot day doing the very thing that he said he would not do. And then Jesus 
put the question to them. And he said, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the latter. That means the boy who changed his mind and came back. Now Jesus said, truly I say to you, that the tax gatherers and the harlots, the people that you hate so much for their immorality, will go into the kingdom of God before you. Because John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you wouldn't believe John. But these tax gatherers and harlots did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe in him. So Jesus is saying to us that repentance leads to a change. And that's why Skip read so well for you a moment ago that text from Joel. Rend your heart and not your garment. You see, when a Jew was demonstrating that he was sorry for something, he would reach up and tear his garment. And that was supposed to illustrate to everyone that he was sorry for what he had done. Well, Jesus said, reach inside and tear your heart. Tear your heart. Let the repentance be from inside you. Rend the garment of your soul. That's what you need to rend. Repentance is something that works from the inside out. It's not the profusion on the outside, not the language, but it's the deeds that count, the deeds that prove the repentance. And this is what he wants us to see, that uh, the token of true repentance has got to be there. And uh, he is always illustrating this in his parables. Uh, it is exhibiting this. You remember the parable of the uh, two brothers. The younger brother who was such a scoundrel and came to his father and asked for his inheritance and went out and wasted it in uh, uh, wild living, but then later repented and came back. And the elder brother who stayed there and yet had a heart that was really not right with his father and did not want to receive his brother when he came back. He wouldn't even refer to him as his brother. He referred to him as your son to the father. Jesus wants to illustrate from that. Uh, he, he talked about the men who for a, tree, for a pretense make long prayers. And he says they will receive the greater condemnation. I remember years and years ago, going out to Colorado to a navigators conference at Colorado Springs at Glen Erie. And I heard Lauren Sani just a few weeks after Dawson Trotman, who founded the navigators, had drowned at Shroon Lake in New York, uh, a man who had been in trouble with the police uh, as a young teenager and who had been sentenced by the judge to go to Sunday school. <laughs> and uh, uh, he went to the Sunday school and found out that uh, uh, they had a contest about memorizing scripture. 
And he had never been to Sunday school before, and he didn't know that people didn't do their lessons. And so when he came back the next Sunday and they asked if they had memorized the scripture, he held up his hand and he had memorized it. And he was the only one that had. So he had to go so many Sundays and he had to keep up his reputation, so he kept on memorizing the scripture. And he was working as a teenager in a filling station. And then one day, while he was practicing his scripture for the Sunday school lesson that he had to uh, commit to memory for the following Sunday, the verse got to him. And he realized that he had never really let Jesus be Lord of his life because Lord meant boss, and that meant that he had to obey his instructions and do what he told him to do. And so he surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ, and Christ became Lord of his life. And Dawson Trotman was changed and founded the Navigators, and Lauren Sani became his successor after Dawson Trotman died. Dawson Trotman was the man who gave Billy Graham the follow-up work, uh, which has been so good. The people in the Billy Graham meetings who go, one of the best things about a Billy Graham crusade is that counselor training program uh, where people are taught how to witness to another people about faith in Jesus Christ. We used to have a man who stood right here at this pulpit and preached many a time who was one of our professors, Donald Munson, whose father was the president and chairman of the board of the Southern Cotton Chemical Company. And I mean that's wall-to-wall -wall money. And Donald was the sole heir. And he was in a very fashionable church where his ideal in life was simply to be a respectable church member and an officer in the church but not to let this stuff really get to him and to have the biggest house in his section of Chattanooga where all the rich people live at Lookout Mountain. And he, in one of those follow-up things that Dawson Trotman invented, became converted in a small group Bible study and Jesus became Lord of his life and I've often described him as the rich young ruler who was willing to leave it and follow Jesus. And so he came to work in our school here and whatever little church he could work in to resign the evident presidency of his father's great company and to work for the Lord in whatever way the Lord called him to work. The repentance means that the Lord does not call each one of us to follow that way, but I'm impressed when people like that do because it shows something there. Well, Jesus is, is showing us here and what Lauren Sandy said out there to me that time that made so much sense. He said, do not talk one inch beyond your experience with the Lord. Don't fake it. Don't fake it. Don't talk beyond your experience with the Lord. Tell it like it is. It's better to finally believe what at first you cannot say than to say at first what you will never believe. That's the story about the two brothers. And that's what he wishes to bring out here. Now, there in that same temple precincts, Jesus had asked them uh, the question, 
What's the greatest commandment, which they, the Shema, which they always were saying, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength and thy neighbor as thyself? They knew that. They knew that. But they really didn't love like that. And neither do we really love like that when we get right down to it. And we need a Savior to change our minds and to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we are not slippery and evasive and slick and smooth and glossy, but that we really belong to the Lord and really let him get inside us and do what he ought to do with our lives. You remember that night in that upper room? The day before they nailed him with three nails to a cross? That must have hurt terribly. What did he do? He washed his disciples' feet. They had been arguing when they came into the upper room about who was going to be the greatest. And Jesus stood up and laid aside his clothing and girded himself with a towel and took a basin and began to sit down and to wash their feet. He did that and they must have thought long and hard. How would you feel if Jesus sat down here to wash your feet? That must have been quite an experience. And Peter, who later would deny him, and who had made such protestations, Peter, when he comes to Peter, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. See that impulsive action of his? And then Jesus said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you won't have any part with me. Now watch Peter. Then Lord, not my feet, but wash all of me. You see, I love Peter because he said that. And, be, and then the Lord said, I don't need to do all that, Peter. I just need to wash your feet to get the point across to you. And this is what he wants us to know here. Now, each one of us have to have a Savior because we have not kept the law. And we need to be saved through the Lord Jesus Christ and our lives are hung upon him. I asked Henry Shewitt before we came in this morning to straighten me out on my engineering. The San Francisco, uh, that Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, I'll never forget the first time I saw that thing years ago. And every time I've flown out across the Pacific since then, I've always been astonished to look at it. There may be bigger ones now, but in 1937, that was the largest suspension bridge in the whole wide world when it was the idea was conceived for it and the building uh, of it was started. And a suspension bridge is exactly what it says. Uh, they had to go down on the bottom of the ocean floor and find a place where they could put a strong foundation for if you go up high you got to go down deep. <laughs> and uh, you've got to to find the right kind of foundation and they did all kind of engineering, Caltech and uh, the University of California uh, worked on it, trying to figure it out. By the way, it's built on the San Andreas Fault. Uh, but the thing stands very well. Uh, and it's, it, 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 it is quite a bridge. Uh, and I want to get this straight. 
and from San Francisco to Marine, Marion County, which is right across, uh, that Golden Gate Bridge, they put down the foundation of the bottom of the sea, then the South Pier directly on the San Andreas Fault, and that took courage. Uh, first, the towers were built, and uh, then they uh, had to make cables. First, they built two huge towers, tremendous soaring towers. And then with ships, they brought a small cable, which they put around and on the tower and over to the other side. And then on the small cable, they pulled larger cables until finally they pulled a 36 and a half inch steel cable. Two of them were used and are the two cables upon which the bridge is built. And then the two great massive cables were strung to the two towers. And the bridge is 8,900 feet from one end to the other. 4,200 between the towers, tremendous. And yet, at that, the longest span in, in this bridge building, they're going to suspend the cables down. After they had strung these two huge cables, they lowered cables from the cables. And then, little by little, they inched their way out, and they built the floor upon which the cars and the trucks and the buses drive, and it's 202 feet above the Pacific Ocean. Well, now, the key words there is suspension. They hung the bridge on something that would hold it up, a foundation, and it held it up. Jesus said to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and soul and mind and strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. On this he said, hang all the law and the prophets. And how are we to do this? Only by giving ourselves to his lordship can we come to that place in our life. And that comes only when we are willing to quit talking our faith and have the refreshing experience of repentance from inside our hearts. A few weeks ago, we had to move the prayer meeting up here, by the way, because it, we filled up down at the house and it's not very good parking there, so we, we come back up here. Hopefully, we'll make it big up here. Uh, but down there, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Romans. And one of the most tremendous and significant conversions in the history of the Christian faith came about when a man learned the true meaning of repentance. You know him as Augustine. Those of us who went to college and to seminary had to study Augustine. We had to read his confessions. And when you read his confessions and see what a super genius he was. And yet he was an evil genius. He was a sensualist. He was a hedonist like the me a generation now, just to gratify himself. He was the father of many illegitimate children. Uh, he could debunk 
Christians because he was so smart. And Augustine had a mother who prayed for him. And she went to the bishop of Milan, whose name was Ambrose, weeping over her son and praying for his conversion. And he told her that the child of so many prayers would not be lost, but that he would be converted. Ambrose, uh, Augustine used to pray, Lord, make me to love chastity, that is purity. Make me pure, but not yet. And that's the way a lot of us want to do. Lord, make me a real Christian, loving the people that are hard to love, doing the things that I don't want to do because I know they ought to be done, but not yet. Let me get a little older. Well, what happened to him? Let me close with what happened to him. This came out when we were studying the epistle to the Romans. Augustine's famous text upon which he was converted comes from the epistle to the Romans. He was in Milan and he was reading the epistle to the Romans and one afternoon he and his closest friend, another student who was going through uh, rigors about the demands of scripture, the two of them were sitting in a garden in a suburb of Milan. The role of the apostles' letter to the Romans lay on the seat between them. Augustine was 32 years old. He was deeply burdened over his wasted life and obviously in a state of serious tension. Something in the letter moved him to tears and to wild lamentations, and he rushed uh, from his friend and he fell weeping under a fig tree in the far corner of the garden. And now let Augustine tell his story from his confessions in his own words. So I was speaking and weeping in the bitterest contrition of my heart. And look, I heard a voice from our neighbor's house, a boy's or a girl's voice, I don't know, and it was chanting repeatedly, pick it up and read, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. Suddenly with a changed countenance I began with the most concentrated thought to try to consider whether there was any children's game that I was familiar with that had a chant like this. And I could not remember anywhere having heard anything like it. And then trying to stop my flood of tears, I rose up with no other thought in mind than that this must be God's voice speaking to me to open the book and read the first words that I should come upon. And so I hurried back to the place where we had been sitting, for there I had laid the scroll of the apostle. And when I picked it up, I read silently the first words upon which my eyes fell, not in revelry and drunkenness, in debauchery or in vice, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and take no thought for the flesh and its appetites. I did not need to read on. I had no need to do so. The figure is a vivid one. 
clothes cover. They protect and envelop and preserve like the grace which covers all our sin. But more than this, is it not a fact that when you see a person, you see their clothing first, then you see them? Well, here Joel had said, don't rend your garment, rend your heart. And here we are being asked to put off the garments of our soul, which are dirty, and let the inside be changed and cleansed by the power of Christ. Then we will present a unified front. We don't have to be the boy that glibly says, yes, sir, I will go and do what you want me to in the vineyard and disobey. We don't have to be the arrogant, storming, temperamental person who throws a fit and then later repents of it. What we want to do is to get the best of both of these together and be polite and respectful and obedient to the Lord. That's the lesson that Jesus teaches us from his own life and the lesson which he brings to each of us today. The choir sang it well, let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to know your need of him. Now, what have you promised, Jesus? And how much have you been willing to live up to it? Bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it makes sense to our second thoughts, and that when we work with it and struggle with it, it has a wonderful way of winning us and winning our whole selves. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful surprises at the heart of the gospel, that we may think that doing your will is going to be the hardest work in the world and not happy, but that we will be surprised by joy, gigantic joy, that you bring to our hearts like a pearl of great price or a hidden treasure, and that we will find satisfaction in thee. And so, for those who have made promises, and those who will yet make promises this day, help each of us to live up to the light that you give us by yielding ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and knowing the refreshing experience of true repentance. Take our hearts and make them thine. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our teacher and our guide, be and abide with us all now and forevermore.